Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. I'm so glad you could be here today. My name is Neva Fairchild. I'm with the American Foundation for the Blind, and right now I have the honor of overseeing a blind leader's development program. This is a program where we match fellows and mentors and put them through leadership training to help them to grow their career, their community involvement, or even their nonprofit involvement on boards or committees or councils that they care about for different types of, uh, you know, efforts like Boy Scouts or uh, little league, or perhaps it, it could even be a uh, women's shelter or a girls development program. Mentoring happens every day, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we recognize it or not. Someone in our lives is showing us the way. And whether we're intending to, we're showing someone else the way. What is the way? The way to live, the way to work, the way to be active in your civic organization, the way to be active in the American Council of the Blind. Sometimes we're a positive mentor. Sometimes we have positive mentors in our lives. Sometimes we have people who show us how not to do it. The trick is to tell the difference between the mentors who are showing us the negative way and mentors that are showing us the positive way. It can be a strategy to use to diversify or be more inclusive in an organization to mentor other people who are like you and maybe not so much like the organization in which you're involved. So it may be a younger person that you mentor it might actually be an older person. Age really has nothing to do with mentoring. We typically think of mentors as older people, but really they're more experienced people. And you can look for those people in your everyday life, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your HOA or your uh, neighborhood association, you can certainly look for it within ACB Texas and the different activities, committees, and events that go on both at the chapter level in your local town or at the state level like this convention. You can even look for it, as some of our members have, at the national level where you get involved in national committees and even in national leadership positions on the board. Mentoring can be formal or informal. I'm going to talk a lot about the formal, but I want you to think about the informal for just a minute. Who in your life has shown you the way? Who has taught you things that you wouldn't have gotten elsewhere? Not necessarily only in school. I bet all of you can think of a teacher in your education that was very influential, that believed in you, that gave you an opportunity, that 
challenged you to strive for more and to do better. And looking back on that teacher, how do you think of them? I think of those teachers in my lifetime as opportunities that were put in my path that I didn't expect and that I'm so grateful to have had. One of my mentors was a band director in high school. My sophomore year in high school, my best friend who lived diagonally across the street, I almost said catty corner, but some people might not understand that, diagonally across the street from me was a freshman. She was a year behind me, but she had played French horn in the junior high band, and she was coming to the high school, and she was going to be in the band, and she said, Neva, you need to be in the band. We could hang out together. We'd have so much fun, and I'm like, what could I play? I I haven't been in band. Well, I had two years of piano lessons back when I was in middle school, So I knew the piano keyboard and I could read music, albeit that I had to smash the music right up against my eyeball in order to see it. I could read music. And so I went to the band director and I told him about my musical experience and he suggested melodic percussion instruments like the xylophone or the marimba or the glockenspiel. They all have piano keyboard-like keys. They're in the same position. They aren't black and white, but they're in the same position as piano keyboard. And so I started in beginner band. In six weeks, I was moved up to the middle band, which was where my best friend was. So we were so excited because we were in the same band and we were doing the same activities together. And at the semester in January, we both got moved up to the A band because they needed melodic percussionists and they needed more French horn players. So we hit the summit after just one semester. That band director gave me a chance and not every band director would have. Well, that fall when I was a junior, she was a sophomore, we were starting marching band. Marching band was only for the A band the best band, the most skilled musicians. Guess what? We got a new band director. And I thought, oh, gracious. What am I going to do? Is this man going to give me a chance? Is he going to think I'm capable or is he going to sideline me? And I'll admit, in those days, I did not have the self-advocacy skills that I have today. So if he had said, "Mm, I don't think you're going to be able to march, Neva, I'm sorry. Um, you know, you'll just sit in the stands while we're out on the field marching. He didn't. He gave me a chance. Two band directors in a row that gave me a chance. And I was excited. And we had to do some adaptations because when you're in a marching band, your stride or your step length has to be the same as everybody else's. You have to stay in step with everybody. You have to stay in line, both right and left, up and down. And you even have to look at the diagonals to make sure that you're marching in the right spot. I had enough vision in those days to see those other members of the band, but what I couldn't see was the markings on the chain that we marched along beside to learn that step length or to get our stride right so that we had six steps to every five yards. And the instep of whichever foot was landing on the ground was right on the mark for six steps per five yards. I couldn't see those, red, those yellow and blue. I remember the colors of the tape still to this day. 
I couldn't see those at all down there by my feet. Good heavens, that's a long way away when you're five foot 11 and three quarters. But a band director, not the head band director, the assistant band director, marched along beside me or ran along beside me and said, too short, too short, too short, too long, too long, too long, right, 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 long, right, long, 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 right, until my muscles learned the length of the steps. And then I used my remaining vision to watch left and right, up and down, to stay in my position. They gave me a chance. They mentored me through the process of learning to march in a band. And in those days, that was life-changing. I thought I was hot stuff being in the band. It also made the last two years of high school a lot more bearable than high school could have been because I was with a bunch of kids that had common interests. I wasn't that visually impaired girl that just went to class anymore. I was a member of the band. I like to call it the gang I hung out with. My kids uh, went on to be musicians as well. They, uh, They had gangs that they were in. My son's was also the band. He was a drummer. And my daughter's was the choir in the orchestra. Uh, she played violin. So that musical start in high school gave me a love for music that I passed along to my children. And those band directors mentored me through a learning curve that took some extra effort on their part and some understanding and some compassion and some openness to let me in. Now, vision loss is not the only reason that people who are blind or visually impaired don't get included, but sometimes it's a major part of it. So finding a mentor who is blind or visually impaired that you can learn from and grow with and bounce ideas off of and share vexations with And just have someone you can really talk openly and frankly with is an important part of finding a mentor and growing personally and individually yourself. That happened for me in my 30s. I had no role models who were blind or visually impaired in my younger years. I went through my high school education Uh, only being exposed to one other person who had a visual impairment, and she was totally blind. And we were buddies in school. She was a year or two years ahead of me. We ate lunch together. um, And I talked to her about how, and I watched how she did things because I had low vision. She had no vision. Uh, Things are a little bit different, but I learned some things from her. I watched her walk between classes when I would, you know, be in the hallway at the same time. And I I noticed how she uh, held her head up and she walked slowly, albeit gracefully, from hallway to hallway, using her listening, using her tactile senses. She did not use a long white cane. I was in high school in the 70s and uh, long white canes were not as prevalent among youngsters in those days as they are now. Then I went off to college, no blind or visually impaired role models there. Um, I got married, had a family, stayed home for nine years and went 
back to college. And in my master's program and finishing up my bachelor's program, I met two other people who were blind or visually impaired. Again, both totally blind. And I learned about technology from those mentors. We were classmates, but they were teaching me about blindness. And I was helping them in ways that I could, um, describing things that were happening around us. Um, I could see enough to see photographs in those days, illustrations in the textbooks, that kind of thing. So I did a little bit of, you know, audio description for them when we would be in study group. But I really believe they were my mentors because I learned a lot from them. I watched one of them work with a seeing eye dog. I watched the other one work with a cane, which at that time, I was a fairly new cane traveler. Didn't use a long white cane until I was um, 30 and returning to college for the second time. And this was maybe two years later. So I was still very much a rookie. And I also learned, like I said, a great deal about the technologies that they used. And that opened my perspectives as to what was possible. I think some of the time, those of us who aren't doing the things we want to do and we're not doing all the things we need to do, it's because many times we don't realize what's possible. We don't know who to ask. We don't know really even the right question to ask. Sometimes it's as simple as talking to people about what you're struggling with, people who are similar to you with visual impairments or with other disabilities or difficulties or lacking in certain skills about what you're struggling with. For example, turning my phone off so it doesn't ring or talk. Should have done that earlier, sorry. Just yesterday, I had a phone call from someone who's um, changing some roles that she's playing and is now going to be expected to do some Zoom hosting and some Zoom screen sharing and some of the more advanced uh, features of Zoom. And she had no idea um, how she was going to do it. She knew I had done some of it, so she called me. And so she told me what she was struggling with. I told her what I knew, and I told her where to find more information. I'm not a formal mentor for her. I'm an informal mentor. She knows she can call me when she has a question. And if I don't know the answer, I'll find someone who does, or I'll send her to a resource that can help her. And so those kind of mentors in our lives are important. But formal mentors where we have a structured relationship are even more valuable. I want to finish my story about where some of my mentors came from. When I went to work for the state of Texas as a vocational rehabilitation counselor way back when it was called Texas Commission for the Blind, I had lots of mentors around me in the other blind and visually impaired staff. I watched what they did. I talked to them about how they did things. I learned from them. I used what I had learned in my college years, like learning to use a computer. And in those days, I was using Zoom text um, and screen enlargement and that type of thing to, to use my computer effectively. But I was also exposed to how well they could do things using no vision, which since my vision was deteriorating, it was a good thing I was exposed to those kinds of different ways of doing things 
so that I wasn't lost when my current systems no longer worked for me. So I ran into mentors in my education. I ran into mentors in my college years, and I ran into mentors in my workplace. That's not all. I've had mentors at church when I volunteered at church, the youth minister, the director of the RCIA program that I worked for as a volunteer also mentored me through knowledge that I needed to be able to be effective in those roles. And once again, they looked past my vision loss and found ways that I could be of service to them and that my gifts and talents could be um, shared with whatever group I was working with. That's what a mentor will help you do. Identify your gifts and your talents, your skills, and the things that you do well and the things that you need to learn to do and help you share those and build those, depending on which we're talking about. Before we move on to this formal relationship of what a mentor, and I like to call the person they are mentoring either a fellow, which is what we call them in the AFB Blind Leaders Program, or a protege. Now, you've probably heard the term mentee, okay? You have a mentor, you have a mentee. Well, mentee makes me think of mouthwash and toothpaste. Mentee fresh. And I hate the taste of mint, and I hate the taste of toothpaste and mouthwash because it's all mint. I don't care if it calls it cinnamon flavor, it still has mint in it. And so I don't use that term. So excuse me if I use a different term than you do, but minty is out. I'm going to use fellow because that's what I use every day in my work. Before I go on to that formal mentor fellow relationship that I encourage you all to engage in, both as a mentor and as a fellow, I want to talk to you about a couple of examples of people who were negative mentors. They didn't give me a chance. They didn't see me in a positive way. They didn't see that I had any abilities or gifts. And at the time, I was young enough that I didn't even try to change their mind. I took what they had to say as gospel, and I gave up. Not a good feeling. Even looking back on it almost 50 years later, I don't like that feeling at all. I thought learning to type would be a really good skill to have. If I put my nose on a typewriter keyboard back in the early 70s when I was in high school, I could see the letters. And with my nose right down in there in the way, I could use my two fingers to punch the key I wanted. Talk about slow and painstaking. It wasn't going to get a paper written, a term paper written, no matter how hard I worked at it. And I made so many mistakes, and correcting typewriters didn't exist in those days, that it, it just wasn't really something I could count on using. My mom typed all of my papers. I hated that. First of all, she didn't like doing it. And second of all, she found too many mistakes that I didn't like her finding. And so 
I signed up for typing. Makes sense, right? All the girls signed up for typing. Are you kidding? It was like signing up for auto shop if you were a guy, right? Or woodworking shop. I really would have liked to have taken those classes too. But this was way before girls took those classes and guys took homemaking, let me clue you. Signed up for typing, went in, sat down at the typewriter first day. It was a manual typewriter. Okay, that's how old it is that I am. And uh, I sat through the first class where she talked about sitting up straight in your chair, putting your feet flat on the floor in front of you, putting your hands on top of the keys with the top of your hand parallel with the ceiling, holding your shoulders back, and looking over to the left where that copy book sat in a stand holding it kind of upright. And do what it says to do. So me, the low vision kid, sticks my face over on that book, which ruins all my posture. I'm looking way over here. And the teacher comes over and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to look at the book. I I can't see well. I have to get close in order to see the book. And she's like, you can't do that. You have to sit up. I said, but I can't see it if I sit up. And she's like, well, then you can't be in this class you can't learn to type, you will fail this class because all of your tests are from that book. You must do timed typing from that book. And your posture and all of that is is also graded. And you'll never be fast enough if you're leaning over to look at the book. And I said, okay. She says, you need to drop this class. You're going to fail. And I said, okay. And shame on me. I didn't know to say, can you figure out a different way to teach me because I can't see well? There's got to be another way I can learn to type. Can't you be creative and help me figure this out? Can't I somehow do it differently? Aren't there audio recordings of how to type? Does anybody remember the talking book that existed for umpty, umpty, umpty years about how to type on a typewriter? It was mind-blowing when I found that. Unfortunately, I was an adult before I found that. Nothing. I didn't think of that, and neither did she. So she was definitely one of my negative influencers, which that's what a mentor essentially is. They're an influencer, whether they're informal or formal. One more positive example and negative example, and then we'll move on to the formal strategies for mentoring and for being mentored. My mom tried to teach me to cook, just like every mom teaches every daughter to cook. I could mix up a batch of cookies and I could bake them. I usually wandered off while the timer was running and they burned anyway, but nevertheless, I learned a little bit, but mom was always really fussy about how clean her kitchen is or was. And I was not a terribly neat cook. Flour would go here and there and yonder. Sugar would go here and there and yonder. Egg goo would get on stuff. And she was never happy when when I was in her kitchen. She gave me multiple chances over the years. And I can remember being in probably eighth or ninth grade. And I wanted to bake a chocolate cake. And so we got a chocolate cake mix at the store And she set about helping me to make this cake. And she helped me get things in the bowl and told me what to do, read the directions off the back of the box, because 
Now, essentially by that time, if the print was small, if the contrast was poor, there wasn't any accurate reading on my part. I might get some of the words, but telling the difference between three quarters of a cup and one quarter of a cup, eh, maybe I'd get it right. Maybe I wouldn't. So we got everything in the bowl and I put the, she handed me the mixer and told me how to put the little beaters in and got it all going. And I'm mixing the chocolate cake and I'm using my spatula, scrape the sides, scrape the sides. You, you can't leave any powder down there. And then she was standing over to my left and I can remember this like it was yesterday. And I looked at her and I picked up the beaters and the mixer and said, okay, I think it's all mixed. Unfortunately, I didn't turn off the mixer before I pulled it out of the bowl and chocolate cake batter went everywhere. Imagine how thrilled my mom was with that. Out of my kitchen, go to your room, which was never a hardship for me because my talking book player was in my room. So I just go read a book. But that was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back with my mom teaching me to cook. This wasn't going to happen. So I took homemaking in high school. And this is another teacher who saw my potential, gave me a chance, didn't let the fact that I wasn't the neatest kid on the block uh, in the kitchen, that I didn't always hit the center and sometimes things splashed out and that kind of thing. She gave me a chance. She taught me some alternative ways to do the things that everybody else was doing with their vision. She did some research. And she guided me through two semesters of cooking. Thank goodness, or my poor husband and I would have starved to death when we got married. She gave me a chance. She guided me. She taught me. She inspired me. For a while there, I wanted to be a homemaking teacher when I finished college. Then I decided I probably could have more influence if I taught kids who were blind or visually impaired in the public school system. Because in the days when I was in public schools, there weren't a lot of other blind or visually impaired kids around. This was before the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA. It was before Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which guaranteed accessibility and accommodations. None of that existed when I was in school. But my parents fought to keep me in the mainstream public school system instead of sending me to the school for the blind. And when I was a student, I thought it was wonderful because I had all these rich experiences. I got to take band. I got to, I got to march in parades. I got to do things. I got to go to French competitions and, and learn to speak French and lots of things that I don't think I would have gotten at the schools for the blind in the 60s and 70s. Maybe. I don't know. I never had a chance. We also lived in seven different states during my 12 years in school. So you can imagine that moving from school to schools to school had its effect on my academics as well as it would have in the schools for the blind in those states. I thought that was important and I wanted to pass that along that if you believe in what you're doing and you have the initiative and the desire and the passion to do what you want to do, then you too can be successful in public schools. We see that every day now with a lot more supports than I had, but we do see that every day now, 50 years later. <clears throat> At any rate, when I went off to college to be a teacher of the visually impaired, I didn't actually know that term. I didn't know that job existed. So I didn't know to ask for it. And my VR counselor, 
with the Texas Commission for the Blind in those days didn't tell me about it. Neither did my vocational rehabilitation teacher in those days say anything about that. That's a thing, Neva. That's a that's a degree you can get. There's there's people that get their degrees in that. You don't have to just get a degree in education and then go on for your master's degree in special education. You should go to school to be a teacher of the visually impaired. Yeah, I missed that memo. So there I was working to be a special education teacher. And the school, when I was finishing my junior year, my second semester of my junior year, said, yeah, we're not sure you can be a teacher as a person with a visual impairment. So we're not sure we're going to recommend you to the Texas Education Agency to be certified. You can certainly finish your degree in education, but we don't think you can be a certified teacher. Three years into a bachelor's degree, I'm told this, and I about flipped out because (laughs) I just spent three years and I wasn't going to be able to be certified. What the heck? So I pulled together a committee. I appealed their decision. I presented to them uh, in the summer before my husband and I actually left college. I wasn't going to leave on that note. I knew I was leaving. They didn't know I was leaving. Um, I wasn't going to leave on that note. I wasn't going to leave that legacy behind for the next person who came along who was visually impaired, who wanted to be a teacher. I fought it. By that time, I had figured out I didn't have to say yes, ma'am, no, sir. I figured out that I could speak my voice and say, this is not right. Um, How could you have accepted me knowing full well I had a visual impairment and tell me three years into a program, you're not going to recommend me for certification? So we had a big, long meeting. They met, I met, we talked, I submitted materials, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll be honest with you, in the 70s, this was not uncommon. I learned later that Texas Women's University did the same thing. I was attending Texas A&M University. Baylor University had done the same thing. And it's just, it's appalling, absolutely appalling. Well, in the long run, they did recommend me for teacher certification. And I left school at the end of that semester, that summer, because my husband finished his master's degree and we moved to Dallas for him to work. I'd say that was my first attempt at self-advocacy. And being a good mentor requires not only personal self-advocacy, but encouraging others to have self-advocacy. I'm not exactly sure where my courage to speak up and say, no, you are not going to refuse to recommend me for certification came from. I can't associate that with a person except my own personal growth between typing class in high school and junior year of college. I guess I decided that I wasn't going to let people push me around that I wasn't going to let what was not right happen to me without pushing back. And I believe I pushed back in an appropriate way. I didn't scream and yell and jump up and down and cry or anything like that. I said, this is not right. I want to appeal this decision. I asked, how do I appeal this decision? And they told me, and I did what 
I had to do to prepare for that meeting. I even bought a new dress. I, I had in my mind how I could be a successful classroom teacher. And I told them all about it. And I learned that through my internships and my practicums that I had done. Even though I hadn't done student teaching yet, I had figured these things out because I knew I was going to have to do them someday if I was going to be a classroom teacher. Self-advocacy and mentoring really cannot be separated. So if you feel like you don't have the self-advocacy skills and abilities that you need or that you want to have, or in the past when you've tried to advocate for yourself, it hasn't worked out so well. Um, Maybe you were too aggressive. Uh, Maybe you were too passive. Then finding a mentor that can help you to develop your own innate abilities and to learn new skills to be an effective self-advocate is the first step. And then as it is with anything you want to learn with the help of a mentor, you have to make a plan and put that plan into action. And that's the start of a formal mentor-fellow relationship. It probably starts out with you observing someone and thinking or saying to yourself, wow, I wish I could do that. I wish I could speak up like he or she does. I wish I had the public presence to keep my cool when I'm not feeling cool and to speak my mind even when I'm really upset in a way that doesn't come across that I'm really upset. Now, you may be thinking right this minute, but that's not authentic, Neva. I'm not going to fake that I'm calm when I am angry. But to be an effective self-advocate, you either have to learn to calm yourself down, back off from that aggressive, angry position to a more neutral, assertive position is the only way you're going to get things done. And there are mentors out there, and you know who they are in your life, if you think about it, who are good at that. And you may have some examples of in your life, in your life, who are not so good at that. So pick the one that will help you most. (laughs) Pick the one that you see getting things done. Pick the one that has talents that you need to develop, that has presence that you need to borrow, that has poise that you need to develop. It starts out with a conversation. And it could be something like, wow, Kenneth, you have such a calm voice. And I can tell sometimes even when you're upset about something, you keep it cool. You stay calm. How do you do that? Can you talk to me about that? Would you work with me to help me develop that? Because I really admire what I've seen you be able to do. And yes, I'm talking about Kenneth Simeon Sr., who is in our midst, even if he's not in this presentation, because he does have that calm, cool, collected voice. Even though I know he gets hot about topics, 
He stays cool. That's something we all can learn to do better. So you might know someone at church that you've seen demonstrate those kinds of skills or other skills that you want to develop. It doesn't matter. It can be anything. Mentoring can apply to any aspect of your life. It can be child rearing. It can be housekeeping. It can be cooking. It can be uh, community involvement and event uh, um, execution and planning. It can be uh, bike riding. It can be athletics. It can be coaching to uh, help you to be a, a better soccer player, uh, a better, I don't know, what kind of sports do you like? A better golfer, a better bowler. You can find mentors in all aspects of your life. The trick is figuring out where do you want to use your energies? Who do you know that can help you achieve what you want to achieve? And sitting down with them to talk through how you can work together and then making a plan. Now, goal setting has to be one of my least favorite things on the planet. But if I don't set goals, A, I can't hit the target that I want to hit. If you're just doing things and you don't have a target in mind, how are you gonna know when you get there? How are you going to measure what you've been doing? And how are you going to know when you've gotten to the point that you feel good about what you can do in whatever aspect of your life that you're looking at and you can move on without setting a goal? You can't. Now, <clears throat> there are um, short-term goals, goals that you'd like to achieve in the next few months, few years. And there are long-term goals, goals that you would like to achieve before um, you turn a certain age or before you retire or before um, your children leave home or before you get married or before you finish college. You name it, there are, there are milestones in your life that you can set goals based on. Now, goals have to be flexible because there are times where influences outside our control affect the goals we set, okay? Uh, COVID-19 is a great example of that. I can't think of a bigger external influence outside any of our controls that has affected goals we may have set for ourselves or our organizations than COVID-19. But there are lots of other influences as well. It could be your health. It could be the health of a loved one. It could be uh, extra duties at work or school that you take on that kind of overshadow a goal you set in another area. So you have to be flexible with goals, but talking over the goals you have and setting reasonable, achievable um, timelines is important. Don't write them in stone. Do not go out and carve them in marble. Please make them changeable and flexible. Now, if you are the kind of person that sets a goal 
and never achieves even a part of that goal and changes the date every year or every 10 years, whatever your focal length is, um, you might you might be a procrastinator, right? Jeff Foxworthy says you might be a redneck if. Well, you might be a procrastinator if you're constantly putting off goals. Because there's something about a goal that is really important. It must be right for you. It must be imperative for you. Or it doesn't need to be a goal. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, no worries. That's not a goal. That might be a wish. That might be a happenstance. It's not a goal. Okay. So let me just give you an example. Right now, American Foundation for the Blind has the Blind Leaders Development Program that I oversee. And about a year ago, we were in the middle of our first group of fellows and mentors, and the leadership team sat down and said, all right, what are our goals for this program? Number one, we need to know so that we can hit that target. And number two, we need to know so that we can tell other people about it and share our vision with them, share our dream with them. So our goal for blind leaders is in the next five years, we will unleash on the world at least 100 new leaders who are blind or who have low vision in order to change the world. A hundred new people who have leadership skills, who have developed a network, who have a mentor in their back pocket to brush things past, pass things by them, to problem solve, troubleshoot, innovate, invigorate. They have what it takes to move up in whatever aspect of their life they want to move up in, whether it's upward mobility in the workplace, moving into management, higher levels of responsibility. What happens if we, we unleash a hundred new people that do that on the world? Well, people around them are going to take notice. Hey, did you see Gerald got the new management position in XYZ department? Do you know him? He's that guy who I don't think he sees very well. He uses one of those white canes. But man, is he up and coming. I want to get to know him better. So not only do people around you see what you can do, how you've grown, but it changes their perception on other people that might be coming into the business, that might want to work there too, that might be applying for jobs at the same company you work at. You're leaving behind, as you move up, a legacy for them to follow. You might actually be helping with recruiting. You might be talking to your neighbors and friends who are blind or visually impaired, people you know through ACBT, about opportunities in your company. The word, it gets out that your company cares about diversity. They care about inclusion. Diversity, equity, and inclusion don't just mean gender diversity, race and ethnicity diversity, uh, age diversity. Inclusion doesn't just mean 
bringing in a variety of people from all walks of life. It also includes all those same people who walk in life with a disability, whether it's visible or invisible, doesn't really matter. Environments that are truly diverse, that believe in equity and are truly inclusive include people with disabilities. And it allows us with a disability, when a company is based on the principles of equity and is working on on diversity and inclusion, it allows us to bring our authentic whole self to work. That's what you as a blind leader would learn about. And you would do it through working with a mentor who's also learning about it and living it. So learning about it and living it. Your whole self brings new ideas to the workplace. It brings new ideas to the community organization that you're passionate about. The parks and recreation program where the kids play soccer and where there's a um, activity center where people go to exercise and play basketball and walk a track and swim in a pool and all of those things. That's what you care about. Then get involved and work to grow your leadership within that organization. Believe me, every civic activity in your community needs volunteers and they need people who are blind or visually impaired and people with other disabilities to be at the table because we think differently. We bring a different perspective to new programs, to new ideas, to changes that they want to make, to ways to use new funding. You bring a different perspective than anybody else on the planet can bring because you are a unique individual. And if that sounds super scary, find somebody who's doing that and talk to them about it. Even if they don't have a disability, you can learn from them as to what it takes and how it works and what you might need to be ready to do in order to fully participate. And that's what diversity and inclusion leads to is full participation with the right mentor, or if you are the right mentor, helping the right fellow, the symbiotic relationship that you develop toward achieving those goals that you set and the goals that fluctuate and change and evolve as you grow will affect the world around you in ways you can't even imagine at this particular moment in time. You may set out to do one thing and something totally different happens. You may set out to get on a committee or a council and you end up meeting a city council person who wants to engage you as a volunteer to help them with projects not necessarily related to the committee that you were interested in, and yet it opens up doors to you that are even broader, even bigger, and you find out that you didn't know what you didn't know and what they're doing is really cool. 
that's the discovery part of growing your skills and your perspective. Your horizons change. What's important to you could change. What's important to you today may not be important to you tomorrow for different reasons, for um, reasons outside your control, for natural reasons. Like as I grow older, I care less and less and less about PTA and more and more and more about senior services and what they offer in my community, not just for me, but for other people. Um, I want to help you dig deep for what you want to do, where you want to go, how you want to be, and to make a plan for finding a mentor to help you do that. I also want you to look around and find people you can mentor. It might be a youngster who wants to learn, I don't know, something that you enjoy. Maybe you enjoy container gardening. And one of the neighbor kids is always standing out there watching you mess with your flowers in your, in your uh, um, pots. And who knows? They just might want to learn a little bit about gardening and botany from you. That's a positive influence that you'll never know the, the payoff for, but an informal way in which you can mentor. You can also volunteer to be a formal mentor in programs like the Blind Leaders Program. If you're a college student, Learning Ally has a mentor program. Um, I believe the Mississippi State, um, oh boy, NRTC, National Rehabilitation Training Center, thank you, um, has a mentor and um, program for transition students. So if you've successfully transitioned out of high school and either into work or into college, you have something to share. Um, and guess what? I bet those kids who are ready to transition out of high school and into college or into work have something to share with you. That's the fascinating part to me about mentors and mentorship is that I get as much out of being a mentor as I give. I learned so much from the fellow that I mentored in our first cohort of the Blind Leaders Program. I learned a lot about understanding. I learned a lot about therapy practices and parent supports and those types of things, because those are the things she was doing and things she was asking questions about. Well, before I can help, I have to understand. I have to seek to understand what she's doing before I can dig around and offer any suggestions or send her the right direction for her to find more answers. I learned a lot. I gained a friend. I don't think she and I will ever lose contact because we have a, it's a reciprocal kind of agreement. Um, she's a, a psychotherapist and she's lost vision over her lifetime, but had a lot of usable vision until just the last few years. So I'm helping her with ideas on coping with her new vision loss. And she's talking to me about 
how she helps people through her therapeutic practice, which helps me because I end up doing a lot of counseling and in the rehabilitation arena as well. I really do believe that we all have something to learn and something to teach. And in every aspect of our life, at every moment of our life, in every incident of our life, we are either learning something or we are teaching something. And sometimes it takes some real introspection to figure out which it is. Sometimes you won't know until way later. But I can give you an example again from my life where my mother-in-law, who has since passed away, was probably 75 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, I was 34 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that had been years and years and years before she was diagnosed. And at the time, she didn't have much to say except, oh, don't worry, Neva, the surgery is just like walking into a buzzsaw. It's a piece of cake. Guess what? On the morning of my surgery, that was not particularly helpful. <laughs> when she was diagnosed, she faced her diagnosis, her chemotherapy, the threat of losing her hair, which at age 34, when I was faced with this and before I knew I wouldn't need chemotherapy, that was honestly the most horrifying part of a cancer diagnosis at 34 was being bald. I saw her face it with courage and with a certain amount of blasé. Whatever, it's what's happening. I'll get through it. It's going to be fine. She didn't know it at the time, but she was teaching me. And when I was diagnosed the second time, about 10 years later, I had a different perspective than the first time. I was also 21 years older. That helps. But I took my diagnosis and my approach to surgery and chemotherapy from her lead. I, I faced it with courage and with a what is, will be kind of attitude and a trust. I happen to be a Christian. I trust in God for my life. May not be where you are, but if it's, if it's a part of your life, that can be part of your, your mentoring is taking your examples from the teachings of your religion, whether it's Christian or not. And I went through that six or seven months of recovering from surgery and chemotherapy with really, except for fatigue, no stress or strain. I was terribly fatigued. But emotionally, mentally, I was strong. And people who encountered me during that period in my life said, how do you do this? You're just, you're so, you're so brave, you know? I don't know about brave. I'm scared, but I know that what will be will be. And I know that I can do this. I can do this with the strength of my God. I can do this with the strength of the people around me and my network. And I can do this because I still have things to do on this planet. I want to achieve more in my life than I have achieved thus far. And I learned how to do this by watching my mother-in-law. And I hope 
I'll never know this unless somebody comes back and tells me. And I did tell her because she was still alive when I was diagnosed. Not for very long, but for a few months. And I told her how I was drawing my strength and my attitude from what she taught me. And you may get a chance to go back and talk to those mentors in your life. If you do, I highly recommend it. It's so rewarding. Will you cry? I'm about to cry. Of course you'll cry. If you get a chance to go back, I got a chance to talk to that band director, Mr. Jackson, Jim Jackson. He wants me to call him Jim. I can't do it. He's Mr. Jackson. I got to talk to him just a few years ago at a band reunion, and I told him what a difference he made in my life and how my love of music spawned from my time in band that I would have never had a chance to be if he hadn't said yes to a visually impaired kid who wanted to hang out with her friend. <laughs> Sometimes the reasons that we do things have such funny beginnings and yet the ends come to be so strong. I'll close before we take questions and uh, comments from the, from the group with a challenge. If you are involved at all in ACBT, doing anything at any level at your chapter, on a statewide committee, on a statewide board, in a leadership position, as an elected officer, find a protege, find a fellow to help. They need you and you need them. None of us can do what we're doing today forever. You may think you can, but time marches on. And either we will get pulled in a new direction that's more interesting and exciting, or we'll get bored and we won't be giving it our best anymore. And we'll need to move on to something that is more invigorating. Find a protege, find a fellow, invite them in. Say, I want you. I want to share with you what I do. I want to help you be more than you might think you can be. Isn't that some, uh, some commercial for the army, I think? Be, be all you can be, be more than you can be by being a fellow. The opposite is also true. If you are sitting on the sidelines and you haven't yet been asked, step up, voice your interest, say, hey, that um, auction thing we did at our chapter meeting like Chris, last Christmas, I want to help with that. I think I think I know some people that might donate to that. Can I, can I volunteer for that committee? Can I help with that? I don't think there are too many committee chairs in any organization, including ACBT, who's going to say, no, thanks. We have all the donations we need. We sure don't need any more help. Something you will never hear, okay? Because always more help is needed. But it really is hard when you just say, I want to help. Okay, what do you want to do? I don't know. I want to get involved. Okay, what can you do? I don't know. 
it takes a little bit of introspection to figure that out on your own to be able to answer that question with a, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at talking to people. Maybe I could, uh, oh, gee, I don't know, greet people when they enter the meeting and like make sure they get a name tag or make sure I get them signed in on my, uh, my fancy little note taker or my laptop computer or whatever. Um, would that be helpful? Because I know you, you pass around a, a sign-in sheet and, uh, you know, we always have to find somebody who, uh, who can see that's in the audience to help us sign in. Could, could I do that for you? Um, gee, in a, in a committee meeting, I'm a, I'm a pretty good typist. Could I, could I be the one that takes the notes? As a committee chair, I promise you, taking notes is the bane of my existence. And getting them back in a timely way is always hard. But if you want to get involved and you have that skill, share it, grow it, and find a mentor who has done that before you when you have questions or when you're struggling or when you want to learn more. You can't learn from other people if you're not around other people. You can't do things if you're always uh, at home doing uh, nothing, okay? I realize we can't go out and get, you know, go to the rec center or or maybe go to committee meetings in person. But believe me, there's ways to get involved remotely with every organization you are a part of, and especially with ACBT. There's work to be done to grow this organization, and mentors need protégés, and protégés need mentors. So which do you want to be today? Which do you want to be next month, next year? And why not think about both? Because we're always learning and we're always teaching. And you too could be in a position to be that teacher or that student, depending on what you love, what makes you smile, what makes your heart just grow inside your chest so you feel like, oh, this is so cool. I am so glad I am doing this. I'm happy to be a part of this. That's where you find your inspiration. That's where you find your energy, even when you are a busy person. Who do you know who's busier than busy people, right? It's the busy people who always say, sure, I can take on one more thing. Sometimes that gets us in trouble. We all have to pick our battles and perhaps say no. And if you're finding yourself overstressed, you may have to do that. But don't use I'm busy as the reason. Use I'm meeting the priorities I can meet right now. When those priorities are finished, this is what I'm going to do. So with one last thing, I'm going to share one more little story. I lead a group through an organization called Well Connected. That is, it used to be called Senior Center Without Walls. So I turned 65 um, a few weeks ago. I was one of the 10,000 that hit that 65 mark on August 3rd. And I'm really kind of proud to get there. And Well Connected used to be called Senior Center Without Walls. And it's all done over the telephone or over a video link. And I run a knitting group on Wednesday afternoon. And I have a goal because when I retire, I want to sign up for 
a well-connected class. And I'm going to find myself a French speaking mentor. And I'm going to go back to speaking French fluently like I did in high school. Because what happens when you don't use something? You lose it. And five years of French from seventh grade through 11th grade. I spoke French just fine. Probably not like a native, but I was told I had a good accent. I want to get back to that. I was good at it. I want to go back to it. What do you want to do next year, next decade, next two decades? Think about it. Find a mentor, plan, find a way to do it. I hope you've enjoyed what I've had to say. I'll take questions. I'll take comments. And I would love to hear a story or two from some of our people in the audience about their experience being a mentor or their experience being a fellow or a protege. So um, I have this rule in, in classes I teach. We're not leaving till I get three questions. So. Okay, right. You have a hand now. I thought that when you, when, as soon as you say there aren't any, they pop up. Talk okay, that is me, Catherine. There you go. Yeah. Hi, Catherine. Hi. And I was, uh, I was born with glaucoma in just one eye. And so I never had, uh, you know, the surgery that was done on my eye was just to save my eye and not to give me any vision. But I still, you know, had, you know, had poor vision. And uh, so, but I was never diagnosed as visually impaired. And, you know, they just didn't do that unless you were blind, I guess. But, you know, in high school, junior high and high school, I absolutely hated PE because I didn't know, you know, I knew I wasn't any good at sports, but it was much later that I realized why I wasn't any good at it. And I didn't have any peripheral vision because, you know, I would go to the ophthalmologist every year and I'd be tested for my vision and get glasses and things like that. But I was in my 30s before I was diagnosed with RP. And so I you know, I would see a ball when it left the pitcher's hand and then I would lose it. So I never could hit the ball. And I never had a teacher in PE who recognized that I had any problem. And the only way I ever passed PE was by passing the written exams and by having clean uh, gym shorts and clean socks every Monday when we <laughs> came in. Congratulations. White short, <laughs> socks and shirts. And we had to have clean starched uh Uniforms every Monday, and that's the only way I ever passed. And so I absolutely hated PE because the teachers were really hard on me because you know I couldn't play tennis. I'd seen that when a somebody you know batted the ball to me, it would you know, and then I couldn't do it. So I hated PE, you know, because of that. But I think there ought to be more visually impaired teachers in PE or teachers who are really taught to understand. Uh, you know, why people sometimes are not any good in sports. The State University of New York, SUNY, S-U-N-Y, has a uh, movement studies program where um, Dr. Laura Lieberman is working to um, help bring physical education and activities into the the lives of, of children who are in school today 
And as for adults with uh, visual impairment who, uh, I'm like you, I was terrible in PE. That volleyball, I would jump for it and try to hit it, and it was two people over. And then I'd stand there and never move, and it'd smack me right in the face, you know? And so uh, it, I was terrible. And, and they have the Association of Blind Athletes. And you think, oh, no, 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 I'm not an athlete. Oh, yes, you could be, okay? <laughs> athletes does not mean just Mark Spitz and, you know, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. It can mean um, I uh, am a, you know, I I'm a downhill skier, okay? I go figure. I skied with a guide. I, I could do it. It was fun. Um, they have all sorts of activities no matter what your age is. And even, you know, a, a simple uh, chair aerobics class, those kinds of things are all available accessibly that are all, uh, you know, audio based and that kind of thing. So you can find somebody who is active in that kind of thing. And whether they are blind or visually impaired or not, um, you too can, can build your physical activities back. Um, I agree with you. Teachers need to be more uh, inclusive rather than exclusive, meaning excluding kids who are blind or visually impaired or people who are blind and visually impaired from anything. But it's a process. Um, society is very afraid of visual impairments. And, um, you know, there but for the grace of God go I is what they think. And it scares the heck out of them. They can't imagine living with vision loss. And yet we all know it's very possible, and it's 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 the life we were born to live, and so don't give up on on that. And if you get a chance to go in and uh, present to a a kid's school through your ACB chapter or something like that, talk about that. You know that that uh, you know you got left out of some stuff because of your vision loss, and. There could have been a better way, and there is a better way. And you want to help them find it with your knowledge you have now. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I, I will say this. I teach children in uh, a community Bible study. It's, you know, just not the, meets at my church, but it's not my church unsponsored. But anyway, every year, you know, we had the story of Bartimaeus who, uh, you know, Jesus healed he was a blind man that Jesus healed, but I prepare the snacks for the children and I carry them down the hallway and take them to each room. And then I dress in costume and tell the story every week. But when the story is about Bartimaeus, I do not dress in costume because I want the children to understand that, that God loves me, even though I'm still blind. But one year I brought a bunch of the stuff that I have for using for a blind people and that was the first time that some of the children even knew that I was blind. And the parents who were helping that day, we have regular teachers, but then we also have parents. It was the first time that some, they didn't realize mm -hmm. that I was blind just because of the way that I function and everything. But uh, I feel like I'm mentoring those children and the parents. Absolutely. When I show them, uh, you know, what a blind person can do. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Oh my goodness! I'm logged on as ACB Texas. I'm sorry, you guys. This is Paul. I should be Paul Hunt, but I'm. I wear many hats. Hello, Paul. <laughs> you know, and I'm logged on as ACB Texas because I hosted a meeting yesterday. Anyway, Neva, that was an excellent presentation. There's only one thing that's missing. 
And that is that we are not at Phil's and Amy's. Hmm. We are not at Phil's. At Phil's oh, well. Phil's yeah. Ice House. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. We have a we have a history on that. We, we used to do that all the time. Cheryl just told me to shut up. Anyway, uh, excellent presentation. Um, here's where I struggle. I have been president of organizations. I have tried to set vision for organizations, and I cannot get people to follow me. And I know I'm not alone. Uh, I also know that many organizations, including ACBT, the Internal Revenue Service, all kinds of organizations fail at mentoring miserably. They really do. Um, and so I struggle at being a good mentor. I mean, I, I can I could probably spend 45 minutes telling people the stories of people who mentored me in my lifetime. But I struggle on the other end being a good mentor. Okay. And I don't know how to resolve it. I, it's just it's diff, this difficult thing for me. Uh, um, well, <clears throat> there are some resources out there that that you could certainly benefit from, Paul. Anybody here could benefit from. And, um, and then, of course, there's the Blind Leaders Development Program that I talked about. You could, you could um, apply to be a part of that. Our applications for this cohort are closed, but they'll reopen in about six months. So you have time to think about it. Talk to me more about it if you'd like. But you, you learn mentoring just like you learn anything else. And if you don't, if you don't feel like you do that well, then there's probably some things that you could add to your toolkit and add to your repertoire to be able to do that. And sometimes it probably, uh, it probably boils down to um, planning and like intentional execution. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and almost like a sales thing where you, you finally do just, ask the ask and and you learn you learn how to do that with time you know um so yeah it's a good it's a good point and if you feel like if you feel like you want to develop that i i would i would love for you to apply for blind leaders next cohort i'll consider it yeah paul and i served on the rehabilitation council of texas together and uh, he introduced me to phil's ice house and amy's ice cream in austin and uh those of you who live in Austin know how good that is. And if you go to Austin, you need to check it out because they are fabulous. We never went anywhere else for lunch, did we, Paul? Never. In four years, we never went anywhere else for lunch. <laughs> you have two more hands. Okay. Cindy, you should be able to talk. Oh, I just, it, I didn't have a question. I just wanted to say I am so with you about being anti-minty. <laughs> Thank you for that validation. I, talk about Paul getting, not getting people to follow him. I keep making this language correction and suggestion to people at my work and people in the program, and boy, they are slow to adapt. <laughs> I can relate. I also don't like the idea of the, the pre-ETS calling them kiddos. I just think that's wrong. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. my, uh, my uh, experience in school um, and, and in teaching at different, you know, different levels over the years uh kids often don't like to be called kids either because yes. I'm not a kid, I'm not a goat. You know? 
Thank you very much. I just enjoyed your presentation so very, very much. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate your comments. Okay, I have Mary Witherspoon. There you are. It I hear you a while for the buttons to come up to say unmute. Okay. Hey, Good to hear your voice. Um, I've been in, in other organizations where I've been both mentored and I have been a protege because, yes, you know, I don't need to be minty fresh either. But um, <laughs> what's always been interesting is I have been with some companies that went through such a selection process to decide. Uh-oh. We lost you, Mary. Decide was the last word I heard. Well, I think I know where Mary was going, that they, that, that, Mentoring and being mentored can sometimes be a very exclusive kind of, oh, difficult to get into almost an exclusionary kind of situation. She's back. She's oh, back. Can you hear me, Mary? I'm, yes. And you're kind of going where I was thinking because I have found in other organizations that I have belonged to, to try to mentor anybody who speaks with you and some things develop um, just because you have good conversations with people, they know they can contact you back. And the same for myself is observing and watching and then just letting people know I admired how you did that or I, I, I have watched you do these things and these are things that I would like to do become the best way to make that connection because sometimes the formal programs, they go through so many questions of deciding who's worthy of being mentored that you miss out on the people who you can actually really make a difference with if you just talk with everybody as if you're going to be a mentor or you want to be a protege and you just put it out there that you know, I'd like to learn more from you. Um, right. You know, each time you and I chat, whether it's often or not often, and never exclude somebody who, because I loved how you said you can't do this forever. Develop somebody as a protege because mm -hmm. there's so many organizations where if you say, oh, how long have you been XYZ office? Well, 12 years now, it's become my permanent thing. And it's like, okay, so are you developing someone in the, to do this in the future? Well, no, I'm really good at this. <laughs> yep. And, you know, there's another side to that coin. Even if you don't get tired of doing it, and now it's 16 years and then it's 18 years, you know, we all die someday. So... <laughs> <laughs> Succession planning has as much to do with, you know, finding the right fit and the right people to develop as it does to helping people move on to what is best next for them. And sometimes it has, you know, dire consequences, which terribly uh, sad when that happens, but especially in companies that can be devastating and in organizations as well. Um, if, if something awful like that happens or their their spouse gets sick and they have to stop because they, they have priorities and, and those kinds of things. It's not if, it's when. And um, so it, it 
and I agree with you about the the exclusivity and and we try so hard not to do that with the AFB Blind Leaders Program, but not everybody is ready to be a fellow, uh, and not everybody is ready to be a mentor. And so then we we go back and encourage them to do some things and come back in the next cohort application process. But that informal, hey, would you show me about that? I love the way you do that. Would you would you mind just teaching me about that? And then that kind of informal thing can become more formal if it if you click and if it goes well and if you and if you feel like it, there's more to learn and more to do. And I, I love that idea, Mary. Thank you for reinforcing that. And it is time for me to stop talking. And thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you so much for attending. I hope uh, you gained something you can take with you and share with others in your world. Have a great day. Neva, this is Peggy, and I just want to say thank you very much for that presentation. Um, I, it was very interesting and very informative. Uh, oh, and by the way, I did know what catty corn it was when you mentioned that, so <laughs> you didn't have to change it because I knew exactly what you were saying. So I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. And someone mentioned about kiddos, and you know, that's kind of one of my pet peeves, too. I, I have an issue with uh, Kids, I, I say occasionally, uh, but kiddos, I don't know. It's just something that just doesn't sound right. You know, child, it was hard enough for me to get to the kids, but when they started with the kiddos, I just thought, no, it just doesn't fit well with what we're trying to do, the way we're trying to encourage and uh, help them to become self-sufficient and be the very best that they can. It's just something about the kiddos that just, didn't quite fit in with that scenario with me. So I even refer to them as children and occasionally I will say kids, but thank you again so much for that. I appreciate it and for all of you who shared uh, the, the things that you've gone through with the mentoring, but keep in mind that even when you don't know it, you're often mentoring because you never know who's watching and who's learning from what you do or don't do. So thank you very much. And thank we're going to take just a Yes. Thank you, it's Linda. There is a yes, hand that I put all hands down and this one came back up. Do you, okay. You want to see who it is? Yes, go ahead. That's fine. Hello, everybody. This is Jason from the Houston chapter. Hey, Jason. And, um, hey, and uh, I just I just wanted to say to, to Neva, it's a, that was a great presentation. Um, I think that, you know, more mentoring is needed, particularly with uh, people who are visually impaired and especially those, you know, who are children. I've been on both sides of the, of the coin in terms of being a fellow and a mentor, even uh, while being from Detroit. Uh, you know, one of my greatest mentors I still keep in contact with to this very day is uh, my last mobility teacher back in Detroit, uh, Paul Stark. He was very instrumental in my life while I was in high school. And even from that point on, we just kept in contact, you know, periodically. And to this very day, we're talking about a good 20 plus years. And he is now a great friend of mine. So, uh, so it, it's so it's so great to be uh, mentored by those who, as Neva was saying, see potential in you, because that can that potential could lead into or blossom into. Uh, a great leader. And so that's, that's why I am where I am today 
is because of people like Paul Stark and many others along the way that have taught me a great deal. And, you know, I've mentored uh, some young men uh, while I was in Detroit and even before I moved to Atlanta to do my master's of, of, you know, young men that were visually impaired. And so it is so important to have those, those mentoring, uh, those mentors out there because you never know who's watching you. You never know the very person or group of people that you are impacting. And so uh, I just wanted to say, well, that was an excellent presentation. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Jason. We appreciate that because uh, we do know that mentoring is is important. And it is something that I think we need to work on a formal mentoring program. We have some things in place that we started, but it has not been quite completed yet. But I'm hoping that by the end of the year, we will have that in place and have a formal mentoring program going on here in the uh, ACBT. We, we're doing it, but it, we need to formalize it. So thanks. I hope everybody got what I got and more from, from Neva's presentation. Thank you very much. Now, moving on, I see that our presenters for the next session are here, um, but we're going to take just a few minutes, about a 10-minute break, and give everybody a chance to do whatever they need to do, and then we're going to come back and start right at 345 with making your wishes known. So stay tuned. 